Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by John Hood. John is president of the John William Pope Foundation. He also serves on the board of the John Locke Foundation, a state policy think tank he helped found in 1989 and led as its president for more than two decades. John is the author of seven nonfiction books on subjects like business, advertising, public policy, and political history. I encourage you to check out his two most recent fiction books, uh, both historical fantasy novels entitled Mountain Folk and Woods Folk. John also teaches public policy at Duke University, as well as tap dancing to tweens and teens. Welcome, John. Thank you, Austin. Uh, that that second novel is called Forest Folk. Uh, Woods no, Folk, dear it's Lord. It happens in I'm the woods and or forest, so that's okay. Forest Folk and Mountain Folk, of course. And we're go. actually going to be talking about those novels today, so thank you for correcting me. So, uh, John, I want to talk to you about so many different things, but one of the things I think you're really well suited to talking about is uh, as someone deeply involved in, generally speaking, the freedom-loving movement. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about what seems to be a growing schism between, uh, let's call it the new right, maybe broadly defined by some kind of populism, and then the more, let's say, uh, uh, blue-blooded or traditional ideas of of the right of classical liberalism and uh, and constitutional conservatism. Is this a real phenomenon? Is it concerning to you? What is the cause? Please help. What do we do about this? <laughs> well, uh, we are doing our bit to try to help. Uh, it's a real phenomenon. It does concern me. It's concerned me for a long time. Uh, it is nothing particularly new. Conservatism in America is has a rich history, and that history is messy. It's full of people saying, this is what a real American conservative is. No, it's not. This is what it is. And this has been going on ever since there was a new right, by which I mean the 1920s. So every generation comes along and someone is called something like the new right. In fact, multiple groups at the same time can be called the new right. Uh, In the 1950s, the new right was what we today consider the old right. So in the 1950s, the real sort of genesis of the modern conservative movement in America you had an alliance of traditionalists and libertarians and anti-communists, sometimes thought of as a three-legged stool. I think that a lot of these analogies aren't very good. Um, A lot of times this philosophy that came together in the the 1950s and 60s is called fusionism because some of its progenitors really did use the term fusion or fusionism occasionally, even though they didn't love it like Frank Meyer, who was the literary editor of National Review, and some other writers, they, they used the term, but even they knew it really wasn't right. And if you go back and look at the 1960 Sharon Statement, which was written by a friend of mine, a mentor of mine named Stan Evans, who for years worked at National Review, Human Events. He started the National uh, Journalism Center. He was one of the leaders of the American Conservative Union for years. Um, he was a fusionist who hated the term fusion. But if you look at uh, the Sharon Statement in 1960, which was developed by the folks who created Young Americans for Freedom, and it, was ha- it happened at Bill Buckley's house, <laughs> uh, it has elements that are clearly labeled as traditionalist and, and elements that are clearly labeled as free market and elements that are clearly labeled as anti-communist. 
And while these individuals at this time didn't all share the same priorities or views, they saw that their movement encompassed these groups, but that these these different and distinct groups were not all fused together into one metal. That, that's why the analogy is so bad, is they really, they were a coalition. They were a series of sort of creative tensions where people could recognize that liberty and order both have value, are in tension with each other, but you can't throw one out entirely in lieu of the other, in favor of the other, because um, some free societies are probably going to be difficult to sustain unless there is virtue, and virtuous societies are going to be difficult to sustain if there isn't freedom. And so these principles can be in tension and be different from each other and yet be necessary. And I think that that's messy enough to be realistic. Human nature is messy. Human beings are messy. And conservatism, in my mind, in the American context, is really an alliance of people who accept certain truths to be unalterable and and inescapable. For example, uh, libertarian or free market advocates believe that the market is just sort of an abstraction that reflects thousands or millions or billions of people's choices. And you can dislike what most people choose or not, but it is just going to be a reality you have to live with. You know, you can think, well, it'd be better if we all eschewed the internal combustion engine and just rode around in horses and buggies, but almost no one's going to do that. And you can do that if you want to and, you know, move to central Pennsylvania you know, but everybody else is just going to accept the reality that technology has taken us past the, the cart and the horse. And similarly, traditionalists believe there are certain truths about the family and its nature, the nature of the family and rearing the next generation that cannot be escaped, even if you want to, even if you want to invent some new socialist man. And the same is true about foreign policy and, and the need to defend freedom. So that's what I think uh, modern American conservatism was. What we have now is a challenge to that consensus from another new right, which is really a a kind of an old right, in my view. This is really the right that the new right of the 50s and 60s was organizing against. Its roots are really in the early 20th century, late 19th century, when uh, at least Republicans, as a political vehicle, tended to be uh, restrictionist on trade and immigration tended to be uh, some, I wouldn't call it, I'm not sure isolationism is quite a fair definition for the Republicans of the 1920s, but they certainly weren't all that interested in engaging America with Europe or the Far East in a way that the previous leadership was, or that leaders later did. So I think this conflict is real. I have my own preferences and my own views. I think that uh, the term fusion is, is wrong, but the concept behind fusionism is still viable and correct. But that doesn't mean that this debate among different kinds of, of conservatism can't be rich and useful. Um, and so that, that's my long answer to your question. I, if I was being more combative, I would describe this as conservatism being beset by populism, which isn't conservative. But I think right. that's not entirely fair. I think some of the people who are populist, I think they're not aware of that. I think they think they're conservatives. And I'm willing to talk about that as opposed to just sling sling bombs at each other this this that was a, f- a fabulous uh uh ride through the history of the movement that i really appreciate and it it gets to sort of a question i wanted to ask you about your historical fiction work but before we get to that 
Do you think that schism as it is today, if we were to just define it as sort of populism versus conservatism, does it arise from any kind of difference in concept, difference in how they conceive of what is truly special about America and worth defending or what about America made it a successful experiment? I guess, what are those things that they, those values that they do broadly share? And then what are, what are those that they do not? Austin, I think that is such a perceptive question because the issue of American exceptionalism divides these populists into different camps. So, some of them, uh, frankly, reject American exceptionalism. Their, their argument right. is America's right. really not all that exceptional. In fact, uh, the, the nation state is the best form of, of social organization, and that is true everywhere, including America. And there are certain common characteristics of nation states and nationalism as a unifying force that are present in European countries and Asian countries and African countries and American countries, North and South America. And there's just not, I mean, there are some slight, there are flavors, you know, there's the difference between French cuisine and Italian cuisine, but, you know, they both use a lot of the same ingredients kind of thing. And that's one view. Now, another view among the new right is that American exceptionalism is about what they mean, which is unlike countries that went off and created empires, America did not. Unlike other countries, at least in the Western European context that, adapt, that adopted a sort of a uh, somewhat laissez-faire style system in the 19th century, America prospered because we had protection for domestic industries. And that's what made us unique. That's Henry Clay's American system which made it made America uh, exceptional and successful. Now, I don't accept a lot of those premises, but it's an important distinction. I strongly believe not only that American exceptionalism is a real thing, but that you can't understand conservatism as a political philosophy uh, outside of a national context. In other words, American conservatives just aren't like Hungarian conservatives to take one important uh, counterexample right, and, and timely example yeah. conservatives it's just not the same thing american conservatives are classically liberal for the most part and uh, a lot of eastern european conservatives are not necessarily so and there's just a difference uh conservatism as a philosophy about you know the importance of traditional institutions and the importance of sort of ratcheting up and down change rather than making radical steps using as I when I teach a course in conservatism at, at Duke I use the example of a the difference between a hammer and a screwdriver uh, conservatives are in every society are about screwdrivers you know tighten a little bit loosen a little bit loosen a little bit well it's too much tighten it back up whereas radicals are about pound 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 or yank it out with the you know with the other end of the hammer yank the nail out and that's the difference if you're a conservative in that context in Iran, <laughs> then you do not much resemble a conservative in Indiana. So that, that's, my, that's my point about that, is that we have to be careful about our definitions. But if we think about American exceptionalism, I think it's a real, like actual fact you can show that Americans are exceptional and good, in good and bad ways compared to other countries. And there's a history of that. What that means in the political context is that American conservatism is just going to look very different from uh, kinds of conservatism that arise in places with with quite different histories. 
Right. That makes sense. And I do think that is a, maybe I haven't been paying attention, but a, a relatively new phenomenon. You mentioned Hungary of a certain wing of the American conservative movement, uh, identifying with this kind of global conservatism that sort of, I don't, I, I don't know if that has even really any historical basis because of what you said. There's, well, it it's so different some. across contexts. Tell us some. about that. When I was describing that sort of early American conservatism foundations in the 50s and 60s, there was a counter reaction to that, including uh, uh, Bill Buckley's brother-in-law, uh, Brent Bozell, who said, basically, you got it all wrong. Spain is the kind of conservative society we should aspire to. In fact, he, he moved to Spain. And his argument was, we need a more centralized uh, Catholic kind of uh, authoritarian type of approach. That's what he believed. Now, I don't know that he was, that was not a mass phenomenon, but there have been in the past people say, you know, actually, we should be more like Britain. Lots of right. conservatives have been Anglophiles. Right. Some have been Habsburgophiles, including back in the 70s and 80s. They would say, you know, the great thing was this multi-ethnic empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Too bad it was uh, destroyed by World War I. By the way, an argument I have a little more sympathy for. Um, but the point is this uh, longing to figure out how American conservatism might relate to some other place is not new. Uh, but using Hungary as an example is new. Hungary, the nation, as an example, is new. The point about this tension between liberty and order and them both having value and free societies are hard to sustain without virtue and vice versa. How does our myth-making about our past play a role in that, that sort of sense of virtue or preserving a free society. Um, you published, we mentioned at the top, uh, a historical fantasy novel entitled Mountain Folk last year and Forest Folk, no, Woods Folk, this year. Um, I guess, can you talk a bit about myth-making and kind of its role in national identity? It's indispensable. Nationalism is a thing. But it isn't often what the nationalists claim it is. For example, some make a kind of explicitly biological sort of a ethnic argument. Nationalism is a group of people who are have, in some sense, shared bloodlines. Uh, and that, there is such a thing. Uh, boy, is that not actually very common. Um, it depends on how broadly you want to define the bloodlines. But speaking as someone who is mostly ancestrally Scottish, um, uh, I, I certainly do not associate myself with the English. Um, and yet Brit British is a term that, of course, has been used to describe a broader political community or Anglophones. So people have Scottish descent and people who have Bengali descent uh, or ancestry, I mean, who uh, both speak a common language, sort of. And so the the myth-making is an absolutely indispensable part of it. And, and, and we often use the term myth like a, it's a negative. It's not. You need some unifying myths. One of the reasons I've been writing these historical fantasy novels, which are set in early America, the first novel, Mountain Folk, unfolds uh, mostly during the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War. Uh, Forest Folk then takes the story into the early 1800s and includes the War of 1812. And the beginnings of the abolitionist movement and the Trail of Tears and related matters having to do with Indian relations. Um, 
These stories allowed me to tackle some of our enduring American myths, characters like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. Uh, these were real people, but the versions of events, the versions of, of adventures that people consumed about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett were not always real. And this happened while they were still alive. This happened to some extent with their cooperation. I don't know that Daniel Boone quite understood what he was getting into when he gave some interviews and there ended up being, you know, tales of Daniel Boone. And I'm not making this up. They it was swinging through the trees on vines and knocking, you know, knocking enemies over with a swift kick, you know, Tarzan style adventures, you know, decades before Tarzan was written. Davy Crockett, the, the stories about Davy Crockett, some of which he made up himself for fun, but some of which other biographers exaggerated. These are a large part of the 19th century literature of America. I spent a lot of time looking at this. My stories are adventure stories, and I hope people enjoy them adventure, as adventure tales, but there's a lot of research in them. And one of the things that I really came to understand is just how important uh, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and related characters, Sam Houston and Kit Carson and people like that, how they were related to people's conception of the West. Mm -hmm. uh, we think about the Western, which was really invented in the late 19th century as a look back at the sort of expansion into the, the Western United States. But the Western really uh, initially was about the Ohio Valley, you know, the Mississippi Valley. It was about Davy Crockett and Daniel, people going down the Mississippi River. That was west of uh, American cities, you know, along the East Coast. and that conception of America, what we are, what we're not, is very much driven by these mythic elements, these stories that were told around the campfire, that were, that were told in almanacs, uh, that were illustrated with woodcuts, essentially sort of proto-comic books. Then mm -hmm. uh, the, the cheaper novels, the dime novels that came out later. Uh, and we get into the 20th century, and I just wrote about this recently for the Dispatch a few weeks ago. Uh, what is the the... the most ubiquitous American export these days, it's the superhero. Cultural, yeah. yeah it, it's, it's absolutely superhero culture, which has its origins primarily in America and is now a worldwide phenomenon. It's one of the most, you know, Batman and Spider-Man and things like that are some of the most popular brands. And they all reflect a mythos, an understanding that is quite American about individuals and how they may have very different gifts. Some people just have some kind of unbelievable intellectual or physical gifts that the rest of us can't really imagine having. But it's still better for us to let them pursue and use those gifts to the best of their ability. It benefits all of us if they get to do that. In other words, we're morally and legally equal or not equal in ability. This is a very American idea. It's related to freedom and free markets and individual rights. And it's something that drives other kinds of intellectuals around the world crazy. But they just find this whole story and successively individualistic. These stories are too individualistic. The government is usually sort of incompetent or in the way. Um, and so these myths that begin in the early days and the kinds of myths I explore in Mountain Folk and Forest Folk, we still see versions of them today. In fact, I argue that really superheroes kind of come in a Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett flavor. You either end up with a sort of a stolid, serious Captain America or a wisecracking sort of funny Iron Man um, or Spider-Man. And that's really the Daniel Boone versus Davy Crockett dynamic in American heroes. So when you see this uh, sort of very uh, public dialogue today about um, 
representation, especially people of color in American history, and the big dialogue around that, and sort of this uh, contention that um, if I'm a young black person in America, I cannot find the the Davy Crockett or the Daniel Boone, perhaps that I can I can relate to, or the, those young people cannot. Is that a failure of the United States not having myths like that at that time that have been carried forward? Is it a consequence of perhaps a miseducation about or, or a lack of adequate historical education in schools? Where is it? Do we need to be creating new myths perhaps for? Uh, those young people to see themselves and the values of America, you know, in a character like that. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, my, my answer to that is a sort of a both and rather than either or answer. Uh, it is simply historically inaccurate to suggest that people of different racial groups, ethnic backgrounds can't appreciate the common heroes. They, they've done that for generations, but it's also true but you do need representation. You do need to depict the tapestry of America in its richly textured, richly hued form. And that's why my, in my novels, I mean, I have one of my main heroes is Nanyehi, who is a Cherokee woman, real person who lived. Um, I have another Cherokee hero named Junaluska, who's on the cover of the second book, fighting a Cherokee river dragon uh, with a magic spear. Uh, Sojourner Truth is a major character in forest folk, because this is not just people having adventures fighting, you know, river dragons. It's also people, in her case, walking to freedom. I depict her famous walk to freedom. Now, I have some fantasy and magical elements in all of these tales, which I think is fun, but I haven't made, most of them I don't make up, actually use traditional, you know, folklore from local regions. One of my characters in forest folk is John DeConquer, who was an African-American folklore character, sort of like Br'er Rabbit. Uh, he was mm -hmm. a trickster character. He he did outwit plantation owners and various other bad guys uh, rather than like overcoming them in a Thor-like, you know, hammer strike. But those are the kinds of heroes that people have often aspired to, to emulate, not just the mighty heroes, but the slippery ones, the tricky ones, the smart ones. And we have lots of those kinds of characters in folklore. They're not as well known. I hope to make them more well known and sort of have some fun with them. Um, and so you're, you're on to a very important question of can America continue to exist as a unified place if people don't all see their place in it? I think young people need to see that does not mean that black readers are only interested in reading about Sojourn and Truth or Native American uh, readers are only interested in Junaluska. I doubt it. I think the extent to which my readers span the sort of spectrum of races and ethnicities, they probably all of them enjoy my version of Davy Crockett and my version of Sojourner Truth and my version of Ichabod Crane, who, by the way, was a real person, which I have a lot of fun. <laughs> I always, I remember as a kid, I actually had uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. There was some VHS tape that we played, you know, until it fell apart. Yes. And there was always a trailer for Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the conception of Ichabod Crane. Unfortunately, I've come to resemble Ichabod Crane in my lankiness and general <laughs> awkwardness and moving around. But I always think about That's the okay. song. Okay, I make him a big hero in Forest Folk. You can be a Great. lanky, big-eared you know, I can finally see myself, yeah, in the tapestry of American, <laughs> the American <laughs> mythos. Uh, finally, some representation, yeah, for guys like me. Uh, what do you think, uh, you know, another people, you said often confuse myths with being uh, bad things. They mostly think of, but what they're thinking of are misconceptions or of falsehoods. 
Yes. What do you think is an enduring misconception or falsehood about uh, American history that you find particularly troubling? I think that the, the most obvious one is every generation is snobbish. And they mm. seem to believe that the prior generations were just not very smart. Now, that's not the same thing as saying previous generations lacked information. We do have a lot more information about a lot of things than our progenitors had. We're not any smarter than they are. We're not any wiser than they are. And a lot of the conflicts that we kind of understand in very simple cartoonish ways today really did strike the people of the time as difficult conflicts. The, the conflict between settlers and Indian nations along the frontier is a complicated story that does not have an easy, you cannot easily tell that and be accurate. You just can't. Uh, there were a variety of miscommunications, a variety of conflicts that were poorly handled. There were outrages. There were also genuine mistakes and tragedies. And the solution to how a growing uh, society where people were far actively farming the land in individual plots, how those kinds of societies can abut and coexist with societies where the land ownership is collective or where uh, there is a it, there, it, there is a law against selling and buying certain. It is not easy. And even today, if you look at how societies in, for example, uh, New Guinea, you know, the, the uh, Southeast Asia or South America, how they try to protect indigenous societies, it's really quite difficult to do this. And so um, I, I think that to assume that the people of the 18 teens or 1820s just didn't care about the fate of Indian nations and it's completely contrary to the historical account. Some were greedy, some were appalling, some were well-meaning, some made good faith efforts that failed, uh, and some, uh, some succeeded. And it's important to remember that lots of Americans have Native American ancestry uh, again, to rigidly separate all these stories in some sort of truly myth, mythological sort of racial right. purity grounds is completely false. Lots of Indian nations did not even think about the membership of the nation as a blood question. People who were captives, you know, people who were captured to replace lost warriors, you know, maybe the captives were eight or nine years old or four years old, and they grew up in a, in a creek or, or Cherokee village. They were treated as equal members of the, of the community. And you would never say, well, they're not really Cherokee because their skin's too light. It's just not the way they thought about things. So I, that's one of the main things that really burns me when I study history is that there aren't any easy answers in it. And it is simply not the case that we today are so nice and smart and previous generations were dumb and brutal. It's just not, not that's not a fair way to think about it. There was more brutality in the past than there is today. A lot of that has to do with institutional change, not changing who we are as human beings, but changes in the social structures that help us make better decisions and punish us when we do not. So now that we've uh, dispensed with the biggest misconceptions about American history, um, I wanted to close, John, because uh, I, I reached out to a number of people before our interview and I said, what should I talk with John about? And they all mentioned your uh, missives from uh, the wilderness that you send out, I, I'm I'm overgeneralizing wilderness, but your your sort of rural uh, your own your own myth making in a sense, your own dispatches from uh, from where you live. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, and also perhaps the biggest misconception about 
let's say, rural conservative communities in the United States? What are some misconceptions there? Well, they probably would have been more accurate. To to describe rural communities and people who live in rural communities or, or smaller cities, to describe them as very different from people who live in urban communities would have been more accurate 50 years ago. It's just not as accurate today because of our common culture. Lots of people, you know, we are consuming the same. Everybody is watching the same Netflix or Paramount or Disney Plus shows. They're all listening to a lot of the same music. A lot of the pop culture has erased some of this. But the main structure, the main differences really have to do with lifestyle, speed of life, and um, the folk ways that people appreciate from the past. Uh, you can still get into some pretty big shouting matches in North Carolina if you if you say that Eastern style barbecue sauce that's based on vinegar is the only real barbecue sauce. And people in the Western North Carolina say, "Now, what? A, wait a minute! Now, a little bit of tomato never hurt anybody." To which a South Carolinian says, "What about mustard?" You know. <laughs> so this is this is the kind of stuff that really charms me that America still has a lot of these idiosyncrasies. And part of what I do, what, what people may be referring to is I, when I go places, I often film videos where I'm talking about various aspects of the research I've done for forest folk and mountain folk and different folk ways that I've studied. And I may be standing next to a river and I tell you about, you know, why this river is named this and not that, or it used to be named this, not that. Um, one of my favorite examples is uh, my, uh, uh, talking about a, a village where my ancestors moved from Virginia into North Carolina. Um, and I didn't even know this, but the, the little village in Western North Carolina is called Chesterfield. Um, but originally its name was Hoodsville, which is right quite convenient because that's where the Hoods lived. And it turns out that at that time, if you got a contract with the post office to be the to control the mail in the community, you get to, to name the post office and they just named it after their, their own family. Well, at, at some point, John Hood passed away many generations ago and his daughter married a guy named John Chester, who then got the postal contract. She said, well, you know, if my in-laws can name this post office Hoodsville, I'm just going to change the name to Chesterfield. And that's how the town was named. I, I find stuff like that fascinating, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, um, these very, you can take almost any community in America and find some kind of story like that. And I also love thinking about the emotional weight of that decision at the time. Like imagine the, the hullabaloo in the community when oh, he did what he changed the post office. And then now when and you it, look it at could, Google Maps, you see a really funny musical, you know, like a music man kind of thing. You know, you could, you could sing songs about Hoodsville to Chesterville, Chesterfield. There's trouble, my friends. There's trouble in Hoodsville. Or it could be a Jets versus Sharks or a West Side Story thing of the Chester, you know, Chester versus the Hoods. Exactly. A lot of snapping. Yep. Uh, John Hood, this has been so fabulous. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. uh, And thank you for talking. Thank you. 